Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. You know, um, one of the things synonymous with dads is um, dad jokes. Oh yeah, here it comes, here it comes. So um, for those of you that were here last Sunday, um, Sunday morning and Sunday night, you would have heard about Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So here's one for you. Atheism is a non-profit philosophy. <laughs> Does anyone need an ark? I know a guy. <laughs> How do you make holy water? You boil the hell out of it. <laughs> How did Darth Vader know what Luke got him for Christmas? He felt his presence. <laughs> yeah, they get better. <laughs> or worse. What's um, Forrest Gump's password? One, Forrest, one. Uh, look, you know, I want to go on a diet, but I feel I've got way too much on my plate at the moment. Uh, and then I thought maybe I could go on an all-almond diet. Oh, that's just nuts. Do you want to hear a joke about construction? Oh, I'm still working on it. <laughs> um, look, you're an American when you go into the bathroom, and you're an American when you come out of the bathroom, but do you know what you are while you're in there? European. <laughs> oh, look. <laughs> it's rather clever, that, that one, I thought. Did you hear about the chameleon who couldn't change colour? He had reptile dysfunction. <laughs> okay. Uh, Caleb, here's one for you. What did the drummer call his twin sons? Oh, no, it's not going to work. Caleb for a drummer, but what did he call his twin daughters, if you have twin daughters? And a one and a two. <laughs> what do you call a hippie's wife? Mrs. Hippie. Oh, how about you turn to your neighbour and tell them your best dad joke? <laughs> Too hard? Too corny? No. Okay. On this Father's Day, I'd like to invite you to, um, to come with me on a bit of a journey. And what we're going to do is take a look way back in time at the first reference in the Bible to uh, the first family. But first of all, the first father. So in the beginning... And I'm picking up this um, creation story in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. At that time, God made earth and heaven before any grasses or shrubs had shrouded from the earth. God hadn't yet sent rain on the earth, nor was there anyone around to work the ground. The whole earth was watered by, an underground, or by underground springs. God formed man out of the dirt from the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. The man came alive, a living soul. Then God planted a garden in Eden in the east. He put man, he put the man he had just made in it. God made all kinds of trees grow from the ground, trees beautiful to look at and good to eat. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden, also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now we'll skip down a few verses to see the purpose of this creation. So there was one job. 
uh, Genesis 2, 15 to 17. God took the man and set him down in the Garden of Eden to work the ground and keep it in order. God commanded the man, you can eat from any tree in the garden except from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it. The moment you eat from that tree, you're dead. You know, as we read this, uh, this passage, it contains two instructions. Which one do you focus on? The one job to do or the one thing not to do? God's focus was on the one thing to do. Work the ground and keep it in order. And God clearly thought that Adam needed some help in this task. Because in verse 18 we read, he needed some company. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper, a companion. So God formed from the dirt of the ground all the animals of the fields and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature was its name. The man named the cattle, named the birds of the air, named the wild animals, but he didn't find a suitable companion. I thought dog would be in there, but no. God put the man into a deep sleep, and he slept. as he slept, he removed one of his ribs and replaced it with flesh. God then used the rib that he had taken from the man to make woman and presented her to man. Now that both of them had one job, in fact, this was the first one job. Let's read on. You had one job. The serpent was clever, more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman. Do I understand that God told you not to eat from the tree, from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, don't eat from it. Don't even touch it or you'll die. The serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows the moment that you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. When the woman saw that the tree looked good eating, looked like good eating, and realized what she would get out of it, she'd know everything. She took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband, and he ate it. You know, um, I reckon Adam probably knew what he was doing. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, the blokes, he probably didn't know, you know, what, what the app, what, we don't know whether it was an apple or not. He didn't know what that fruit was, maybe, you know, he just took the fruit and ate it, and then, you know, it all went bad for him. But I don't know about you. I reckon God gave him his instruction. What, what instruction did you focus on? The one to do or the one not to do? I reckon Adam probably would have walked past that tree and looked at it. I reckon he would have recognized the fruit from it. Yeah, It's only human nature, isn't it? And often this um, human nature is actually displayed in our children as it's... Um, shown in this little video. How many parents in the room would have told their children, you know, um, don't do that, don't touch that, don't do that? And you, you just swear that the kids have heard, do it, do it. <laughs> you know, um, I just re I remember um, when we were on a family camp, our boys were very young, and we were um, camping in uh, Marahou up in uh, Nelson at Old McDonald's Farm, and we told one of the boys, um, Look, um, Pop had a, had a lantern and it was going 
and it was really, really hot. And so we, we, we told one of the boys, don't, don't touch the lantern. It's really, it's really hot. It's like the stove, it's like the fire. It's really, really hot. What did they do? Touched, touched, the, touched the lantern, burnt their fingers, spent the night in lots of drama, in the caravan, lying on the bed, fingers, hand, in a, in a basin of water the whole time. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> but anyway, let's go back to the story. So they were busted. You know, um, God said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you gave me as a companion, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and yes, I ate it. God said to woman, what is this that you've done? And she said, the serpent seduced me, and I ate it. In this passage, you know, we see common um, patterns of human behavior, don't we? There's blame. The man, first of all, he blames God, I reckon. It says, the woman you gave me. You know, if I didn't have the woman, you know, this never would have happened. <laughs> and then, then he blames the woman. Well, she gave it to me. And the man, he minimizes his role in the whole transgression. You know, so, sure, you know, you gave me her, she gave me that. Yeah, I, I ate it. I mean, what was I going to do? It'd be rude not to, right? <laughs> you know, often we see these patterns of behavior in life. We see them in ourselves and in others. You know, hey, God, it's your fault. Or, hey, God, it's their fault. Hey, God, it's not really my fault. But as we often learn in life, there are consequences to our behavior. And we see that um, Genesis 3, 23 and 24. So God expelled them from the Garden of Eden and sent them to work the ground, the same dirt out of which they'd been made. He threw them out of the garden and stationed an, agent, an angel cherubim and a revolving sword of fire east of it, guarding the path to the tree of life. This isn't the greatest start to, the, to their relationship, is it, Adam and Eve? It's, it's not great. But what about the first family? Uh, first family. Who was the first family? No, not that first family. Probably just as dysfunctional, but um, we'll go in and take a look at Cain and Abel, please. Yeah, thanks. Um, so... We read about Cain and Abel uh, in chapter 4 of Genesis. Adam slept with Eve, his wife. She conceived and had Cain, and she said, I've gotten a man with God's help. This, this comes straight after what we've just read. Really? I mean, that soon? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, you know, that blame game had started in the garden, and I reckon once they were expelled, it would have continued for some time. Can you imagine it? Every time they looked around and saw that fiery sword revolving, they would have, you know, started up, I reckon. Why'd you listen to the servant? Well, you know, why'd you eat it? I mean, if I told you to jump off a bridge, would you go and do that? It's probably a bit too early for bridges, I understand, but you get the idea. You know, and this would have gone back and forth and back and forth, I'm sure. As we can see, blaming each other goes back a long, long way. 
but eventually they did um, fulfill the, the instruction to be fruitful and multiply. So we read on. Then she had another baby, Abel. Abel was a herdsman and Cain a farmer. Time passed. Cain brought an offering to God um, from the produce of his farm. Abel also brought an offering, but from the firstborn animals of his herd, choice cuts of meat. God liked Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering didn't get his approval. Cain lost his temper and went into a sulk. God said to Cain, why this tantrum? Why the sulking? If you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is lying, waiting for you, ready to pounce. It's out to get you. You've got to master it. Cain had words with his brother. They were out in the field. Cain came at, Adam, at Abel, his brother, and killed him. God said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, how should I know? Am I his babysitter? God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is calling to me from the ground. From now on, you'll get nothing but curses from this ground. You'll be driven from this ground that has opened um, its arms to receive the blood of your murdered brother. You'll farm the ground, but it will no longer give you its best. You'll be a homeless wanderer on earth. Not so good, eh? You know, before this happened, and when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, God is still on the scene. You know, as I was preparing for this, you know, I thought, you know, we can, we can sense the judgment of being kicked out of Eden, of being expelled, but yet God is still with them. God is still with them, and he's still with their children, because he's still talking to Cain. So they were banished, but they weren't abandoned by God. He's still on the scene, and you know, he, he's making his approval known of Abel, and making it known to Cain that he didn't approve of his, but when Cain storms off, throws a patty, sulks, God goes after him. God goes after him and communicates with him verbally. You know, he spoke to him, and he lets him know that he has a chance to do well. He does have a chance to be accepted. Or not, it's Cain's choice. Cain had a choice, you know. We have a choice. We can be proactive. I like um, Stephen Covey's um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, And he has a model for this first habit of being proactive. He says there's a gap between stimulus and response. And in that gap is the freedom for us to choose. And we can exercise our for human gifts, we can exercise self-awareness in this moment. Okay, I can take stock, I can be aware of what's going on. I can imagine a better outcome, a better future um, as a basis of my decision. Um, I can listen to my conscience. Is this right? Is this wrong? Um, And then I can exercise my independent will. You know, we have the freedom to choose. Freedom is part of who we are as people. Um, And People are volitional. Dr. Larry Crabb, a Christian counsellor, wrote in his book, Understanding People, that he suspects a great majority of people, Christian and non-Christian alike, don't see themselves as choosing beings. He says, when we eliminate confusion by accepting glib explanations and following formula-like guidelines for living, our behaviour becomes more of a response to what we're told and less of initiating choice to take hold of our words. The thrill of volitional uh, movement is gone. The thrill is gone. 
how do you get the thrill back? Crabb says, restoring the feeling of choice or volition depends on, on exposing our fundamental goals. No enduring and worthwhile change takes place without the recognition and repentance of wrong goals. You know, um, I've been Christian for a long time, and when, um, when I was uh, doing Christian counselling and I was um, reading this book, uh, Understanding People as part of our training, um, I was r really struck as to, um, wow, the fact that I have a choice. You know, we can think we're, we're you know, I know I'm body, soul, and spirit. And sometimes in, in Christian life, you can think, you know, we, go, we sort of go through the motions and we think, oh, we don't really have a choice. Life just sort of happens to us and that will be God's will and whatever happens, happens. But in actual fact, God has made us with a choice and we can choose. And even coming, you know, coming along to church, we can just go through the motions. We can be thinking, oh, you know, just do this, just do that, without actually stopping and reflecting. Why am I doing this? And then having to stop and take reflection, then choose, ah, I'm doing this because now I'm going to, be, I'm going to consciously choose to follow God. I'm going to consciously choose to be in the house. I'm going to consciously choose to love other people and to serve other people. Yes, um, Crab says um, we need to reflect. Yeah, there's no life in it if we don't. Crab says, uh, yep, that we need to stop and pray, basically. We need to examine our motives, examine our goals. What, what are we, why are we doing this? You know, why are we doing what we're doing? And recognising and owning the decision for ourselves and choosing to follow God. Yeah. You know, um, many years after Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, we read of a man who exercised his choice. And it was great uh, in the prayer meeting to hear Nicole talk about this, about not being afraid or being discouraged. Because in Joshua uh, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, we read of a man who chose to exercise his freedom to choose. But God said to him, be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Don't deviate from them, turning to the left or the right. Then you'll be successful in everything you do. Moving on, there's a big gap between that. God comes, he says, be strong and courageous. Joshua is strong, is courageous, leads the people out through the Jordan into the promised land, conquers um, cities, conquers land, takes possession, gives the land out. And this is a long time later that we pick up in Joshua 24. As for me and my family. Then Joshua summoned all the tribes of Israel 
the Shechem, including their elders, leaders, judges, and officers. So they came and presented themselves to God. And at the end um, of his speech, he concludes with this. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Because as they'd gone into the land, they were distracted. They started following the gods of the, of the people in the land. Some did, some didn't. And so he gets to the point, he's nearing the end, um, and he's putting it to the people. You're going to have to make a choice. So put away forever the idols of your, your ancestors' worship when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. They'd gone back to worshipping the gods that they had been worshipping in Egypt. They'd gone back. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the God, uh, the gods of the Amorites in whose, end, uh, in whose land you live now? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. It, it, it's a choice, isn't it? It's not like my family... We go through life, whatever comes will come. No, it's a choice. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. There's an old, old song um, written by Bob Dylan, great poet. Um, and he, he wrote, you've got to serve somebody. You know, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. Love those kids. Let's trash the place. <laughs> You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was because he won a, <laughs> actually won a, an Emmy for it back in 1979. <laughs> <laughs> Choose this day whom you will serve. It's the most, the most important um, decision you can make as an individual and as a parent and as a father. We will serve the Lord, my family and I, we will serve the Lord. But what does it look like? Because we can often place um, unrealistic expectations on ourselves to be perfect, to be the perfect husband, to be the perfect dad, uh, to have the perfect kids, but it's just unrealistic. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be good enough, I reckon. Can you imagine meeting um, Adam at the local watering hole not long after the death of Abel, striking up conversation? So, uh, Adam, where are you from? Well, I was from Eden, um, but I'm not going back there. Uh, so, uh, what do you do? What do you do, Adam? Well, I had this great job, but um, it's got... Uh, it's pretty hard at the moment. Um, any kids? Uh, two? Oh, no, we had two. Um, one died tragically. I don't, don't really want to talk about that. Uh, so where's your son that is alive? Uh, I haven't seen him around helping you out. Uh, well, he's gone walkabout. Um, can't really stay in one place. He's got to wander on. You know, the bar wasn't set very hard. Very high for us. When we go back, look at that first family. Yeah, there wasn't perfection there. Yet God was with them. God was with them. So how do we, how do we build healthy families? Who can we look to as a model? 
Well, we can look to God as a model, as a father. And in Psalm 103, verse 8, 9, and 13 to 18, I'm just going to read. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. His salvation extends to the children's children of those who are faithful to his covenants, of those who obey his commandments. God is perfect. God is a perfect father. He's compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry. Well, I failed there. You know, how many dads have? Probably not the only one. Um, Filled with unfailing love, God is, and he doesn't remain angry forever. He's tender and compassionate, and his salvation extends to generations. He's interested in generations. Um, You know, that psalm was actually written by David, a man after God's own heart, we read. Yet David was an adulterer and a murderer, and yet he wrote that about God. That was his experience of God. That was his declaration of God. There's hope for all of us. God's love is for all of us. Even although, you know, we might not have done the things that um, David did, we can still feel unworthy. Um, My father-in-law, Pop, um, to the boys, he had a heart of gold. He'd do anything for his family. He used to say that if he came to church, the walls would fall in. Uh, the roof would collapse, but he did come along um, on several occasions. I think it was probably just for the grandchildren. Um, the walls didn't fall in. The ceiling didn't collapse. He started to read his Bible. He forgave himself. He forgave other people. He sought God's forgiveness and declared his faith in Christ before his death in 2007 just nine days um, after the death of my youngest brother at age 36. We're never too old to experience God's love and forgiveness and become part of his family. For a New Testament reference, we can also look to the Apostle Paul as a model. In 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 14 to 16, he says, I'm not writing all this as a neighborhood scold just to make you feel rotten, I'm writing as a father to you, my children. I love you and want you to grow up well, not spoiled. There are a lot of people around who can't wait to tell you what you've done wrong, but there aren't many fathers willing to take the time and effort to help you grow up. It was Jesus, it was as Jesus helped me proclaim God's message to you that I became your father. I'm not, you know, asking you to do anything that I'm not doing I'm not already doing myself. So he demonstrates love by wanting the best for his his children, not his biological children, but children in the faith. He demonstrates a willingness to take time and put effort in to the process of helping children grow up, to grow in their faith. And there's many contemporary sources of wisdom too on on parenting. And um, Ian Grant, I wrote a book, Fathers Who Dare Win. 
And in that he said, you know, the building blocks are simple. Give your children a variety of experiences when they're young, when they're small. It'll help develop their brain power um, that your children need. Establish consistent love and limits and that will give them the security that they need. Teaching them skills and teach them skills and let them practice alongside you. That'll help build their self-esteem. Put dreams in their heads to give them a future. Ian Grant um, writes in his book, a good team always has a good coach. It's a principle. If dad and mum, or dad or mum, as applicable, see their role as a coach to their family, they'll leave good messages for their children that'll remain for the rest of their life. I reckon dads are great coaches. In Proverbs we read, um, parents, train a child in the way they should go. Point your kids in the right direction, it says in the message. When they're old, they won't be lost. In the NLT it says, direct your children onto the right path, and when they're older, they won't, they won't leave it. Some people use this as a, as a verse, as a guarantee. You know, if you do this, then um, your children will always stay on the right path. Well, that can be a bit problematic um, for good parents who have children who have strayed off the path. Others um, would say that it's not necessarily, a, well, it's not a promise to their parents, but maybe a warning that if um, adolescents grow up without guidance, then they'll just go their own way. Another view that I've heard expressed is that um, it's more about helping people find, helping children find their gifts and talents and helping them discover their purpose in life. And that's what I really enjoy. You know, helping kids discover their purpose in life, how they're wired, how God's made them. Yeah. I believe it's important for parents to teach our children about Jesus. I do believe that, to train a child in those things, to teach about Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection, his instructions, and his commission. But I also believe that we have a responsibility to recognize um, the individual gifts and talents of our children, their temperaments and personalities, and to help them to value them, and to value, their, their, um, to value the differences in other people. I remember um, we, were, uh, we were doing the seven habits of highly effective families as as a family when the kids were young and preparing for this I pulled out um, the book and there was some pages in it and it had the boys writing on it and what we'd done is we'd done an exercise where we were looking at what we valued about it people in our family. It's not always for, for brothers to say something positive about their brother. <laughs> but we did it and they, they, they took it seriously and they wrote things down and we were able to summarize them. So we were able to say for mum, she loves having fun. She's got sparkling eyes and smile. She solves people's problems and helps them. She does great cooking. Dad listens to people. He does computers and teaching. We love him being a dad and getting information to help us. Chris loves looking after pets and looking after people. 
volunteered at SPCA for many years. Yeah. He's good at building things. He would build ra- uh, rafts that we'd put in the swimming pool and huts under the house that I was always worried about, them lighting candles and burning it down. Um, Chris is good at problem solving. Tim was great at talking to people, playing sports, playing guitar, making people happy. Happy Tim. So that's just something that we did as a family to, to value each other. helping people understand who they are. It's an important task for us and our children. It's also a measure of a hero. And I love this quote um, from Avengers Endgame. It's gonna come up, I'm not sure. Everyone fails at who they're supposed to be for. A measure of a person, of a hero, is how well they succeed at being who they are. You know, God's made you. He's made you unique with gifts and talents. How well are you doing at succeeding at being who you are? Because even, even, even when we have got a great heritage, when we know that there's something within us, we can feel like we're not so sure like we've got doubts about our ability to step into our destiny as royalty. And I've just got another couple scene. If you, if you're um, a fan of Lord of the Rings, this is where Strider. He's a ranger. He's out somewhere in the west, flying under the radar. But he has destiny. He's from a line of kings. He picks up broken sword of the king, which represents failure, but also destiny. And sometimes we can be from a line of successful people, and we can think, oh, same weakness, you know. I'm just same weakness as Adam, really, in that in that garden. Maybe the same weakness as Cain. You know, we can feel like we're not worthy, but we have destiny. God is destined for us to be royalty. And I love speaking about end game. This, um, this verse in Corinthians, there's a nice symmetry in this. Death initially came by a man and resurrection from death uh, came by a man. Everyone dies in Adam Everybody comes alive in Christ. But we have to wait our turn. Christ is first, then those um, with him at his coming. The grand consummation when after crushing the opposition, he hands over his kingdom to God the Father. He won't let up until the last enemy is down. He's going to fight for us. And And the very last enemy is death. He's taken death. As the psalmist said, he laid them low, one and all. He walked all over them. When scripture says that he walked all over them, it's it's obvious he couldn't at the same time be walked on. When everything and everyone is finally under God's rule, the son will step down, taking his place with everyone else, showing that God's rule 
is absolutely comprehensive, a perfect ending. And I'm going to end now. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.